Amen. Thank you, music team. It is uh, just wonderful to that team begins to fill in, to have a couple instruments and a couple singers. Great to have you all here this morning with us. In Lewis Carroll's book, Through the Looking Glass, a sequel to Alice in Wonderland, Alice is found in conversation with Humpty Dumpty, saying that Humpty looks exactly like an egg. Humpty, being the philosopher that he was, finds her observation to be, quote, very provoking. Alice, wanting to be clear in what she said, she says that he looks like an egg, not that he is an egg. Although, if you have read the nursery rhyme or had your mother read it to you, he certainly looks like an egg with two feet and a couple little arms. When Humpty says, my name means the shape I am, they, de- they discuss the word semantics, which is the study of meaning and truth. And linguistic pragmatics, they also dive into that. Humpty was quite the thinker. Linguistic pragmatics, in this term, is the study of how context contributes to meaning. In a wonderful chapter titled, Bringing or Bridging, excuse me, the Cultural Gap, in a book titled Basic Bible Interpretation by Roy B. Zuck, Roy quotes a conversation between Humpty and Alice, where Humpty said, quote, there is glory for you, end quote. The statement was puzzling, so Alice asked Humpty, I don't know what you mean by glory. Dumpty smiled, his nice egg-looking face, very contemptuously, and said, quote, Of course you don't, till I tell you. I meant there is a nice knock-down argument for you, end quote. Alice objective. But glory doesn't mean a nice knockdown argument. Humpty replied in a rather scornful tone When I use a word, it means just what I chose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master? That is all. Beloved, what Humpty Dumpty was saying was that he was the master of his words. They were not the master of him. Humpty used words, and although seemingly they did not make sense as to what each individual word was, the context of what he began to share with Alice then let her know what he had meant. And there it was, Humpty, in a very prideful way, used words the way he wanted. Well, taking this principle from Humpty Dumpty, we could apply it to what we observed last week when the Apostle Paul used the word wine as a medication rather than a social beverage that we would understand of today. We learned that although wine, uh, uh, the wine of today is similar and shares some of the same properties, it certainly shares the exact same letters and pronunciation, wine, it is fundamentally different having 75% more alcohol in it today than the wine of first century Ephesus. We learn 2,000 years removed, or we, 2,000 years removed from Ephesus, still have wine and the word wine. However, 
When we hear wine, we don't think of medication as Paul was using it. We think of a social drink. Therefore, we learned last week, and we will see it again this week, that we modern-day readers, just like Alice, bear the responsibility to understand what the author, the Holy Spirit-inspired Paul in this case, meant when he used the word wine. Roy Zuck, the author of Basic Bible Interpretation, went on to point out that when Humpty Dumpty brought the context of his thought to Alice, she clearly understood what he was saying. However, without that context, Alice was left wondering for the purpose and the proper interpretation of Humpty's words. So it is. When it comes to understanding any author's intent, one must be careful to allow the author to be the master of his words. Like Alice, who received the words of Humpty Dumpty, we must be willing to hear what the author intended. In short, we might have to ask the question, who is going to be the master of what I hear? Should it be the author? Or should I find some word that is similar and read it into the text? Well, we know the answer. Will we let the Holy Spirit, God himself, be the master and author of the words before us today, or will we be confused like Alice, only to receive a scornful answer from the Lord? When I use a word, it means just what I chose it to mean, neither more nor less. Beloved, today, as we peer into the difficult topic of slaves and masters, we're going to learn a monumental principle concerning being Christians. We're going to learn that choosing to honor while in difficult circumstances glorifies God and advances Christianity. There are three truths laden within this text which support the principle. The first deals with slaves and all masters. The second deals with slaves uh, with believing masters. And the third is one that we have already seen many times throughout 1 Timothy uh, and it is that he is commanded to continually be teaching and preaching these things. And we're going to consider those things. Let's take a look at the first one. The first truth we see deals with all who are under the yoke as slaves. The word all here is the Greek word hasas. I remember trying to memorize this as I was probably driving down the road somewhere in North Carolina, and, and it usually means or is translated how much or how many, but here it is translated all, and it could be translated something like as many as, as much, as many as, uh, those types of things, referring to specifically those who belong to a particular class or group. And we, uh, we don't see that so much in the English, but it makes sense in the Greek that it would be this word because it is pointing towards a particular class or group, which we know to be, in the first clause, slaves. This class or group of people are under the yoke, it says there. Yoke is not a very common word for us today, but I think it's important for us to understand. You have been around. This is Wyoming. We have agriculture and, and maybe have a little idea of what a yoke means, and we certainly use it a little bit in our culture, but it is this beam, this heavy cross beam of usually made of wood that would go around the necks of beasts of burden, and that would tie those two beasts together so that they would then hook up a plow, right, to drag and tear up dry and hard ground. And these beasts of burden would work day and night, right, pulling this plow, breaking up ground, or pulling carts, uh, 
And the yoke became this symbol of this item that, that tied all that heavy, burdensome work together. And it also gives us this imagery of how people, at this point in time, even some slaves in Roman history were looked at just as beasts of burden, people to do the work. And here we see in the text that it is a yoke, right? It is something that is heavy. It ties people to work. The Bible teaches that those who are not saved from God's wrath on sin by faith in Christ Jesus are slaves to sin. They are essentially yoked together. They are tied together with the sin of Adam. They have been pulled or yoked down with this sin that has been passed on from Adam, leaving them in a burdensome, horrible situation. Knowing this, Jesus condemned Chorazin and Capernaum for not believing him after seeing all the miracles. I want to pause for just a second. As so often in my life and talking with people, um, they will refer to, you know, well, maybe if I could have seen the miracles of Jesus, then, then I would believe. <laughs> the fact of the matter is the Bible is full of stories of miracle upon miracle upon miracle. And Jesus here in Matthew is condemning two cities for the amount of miracles that had been done within them. And they just said, we don't believe you. And Jesus, understanding this, understood that they were under the yoke of the slavery of sin. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, being deeply concerned for their condition, he says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden. That is from what? The yoke of being slaves to sin. And I will give you rest, Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of the law in sin was to point out people's sin in their lives, to make you aware of sin that you had. And Jesus understood that living under that law and attempting to constantly be aware of the Ten Commandments, the Levitical law, to bring all the sacrifices three times a year, come to, come to Jerusalem and celebrate and offer sacrifices was costly and, and burdensome. It was a yoke that they were tied to. And Jesus is saying here clearly prophetically at this point in his ministry, come to me. Drop that yoke. Get rid of that sin. You will never be able to follow the law. But if you'll come to me, you'll find rest for your soul. Beloved, I don't know everybody in here this morning, and this is certainly uh, we're moving towards understanding slaves with the Bible. If you are not a believer, if you have not been born from above, the Spirit of God is not living in you, evidenced usually by, by kind of being turned off by sin rather than turned on by sin. You are yoked up. You are a slave to sin. And Jesus would call to you, come unto me. Put your faith in the work that he did on the cross, fulfilling the law, giving you a path to find rest for your soul. So this class or group are yoked up to something, and the text is explicit to tell us who they are. 
all who are under the yoke, there it is, as slaves. The Greek word for slave here is doulos. It gets translated in a number of different ways throughout your scripture, and you're going to understand that, I think, a little bit better as we work our way through it as our English translators trying to wrestle with the idea it's really one word, but there were many different ways in which somebody became a slave in the Roman world. And so some were, were brutally treated and others were literally business people completely running, operating in, in white-collar businesses for those who own them. So the New Testament and the translators are wrestle with this idea of how to translate doulos. Do we say slave? Do I say bond slave? Do I say servant? <laughs> Do I say bond servant? All of those are decisions that are being made because there is one word sitting there, and it is doulos. Without a doubt, when Americans hear the word slave, we almost always envision the horrors of 16th to 19th century North American slavery. Here is where this morning we are going to have to be careful and hear the word in its context. I'm going to spend maybe a little bit more time, but not much more. We spent a lot of time defining who an elder was. We spent a lot of time defining who a, uh, who a deacon was. We spent a lot of time defining who was a widow in the church and how to honor that widow and how to honor elders. So we need to spend some time and understand that the, that the subject of the sentence here are slaves, but what did God mean in the time in the first century? What, what did it mean to be a slave? Like the wine of first century Ephesus was similar to the wines of today, even sharing the same name, modern wines are different from those found in ancient Rome. So it was with North American slavery versus slavery of Rome. They were similar. They share the exact same name. Some of the elements are exactly the same, but there are some important differences to note. In my study... I found a history article titled Roman Slavery and American Slavery, subtitle, How Were They Different? The author's name was Tony McMahon, and he gave some helpful insights that I think will help us maybe draw some distinctions and understand when we see the word slave in our New Testaments, it has such a wide variety of not necessarily meanings. It certainly meant that somebody was owned, another human being was owned. The circumstances by which they were owned were very different than American slavery. American slavery had everything to do with the color of your skin. From 1514 to 1866, if you were black and you were in the South, you were a slave. 300 black slaves were forced from their homes in Africa directly into the United States between 1514 and 1866. Other black African slaves to the tune of 4.5 million were shipped directly to the Caribbean. From the Caribbean, 70,000 migrated, or not migrated, that's a horrible term for this, forced into the United States of America. An additional 3.2 million were forced into present-day Brazil. In Rome, quite differently than, uh, than America, the color of your skin did not matter. 
as it pertained to slavery. As McMahon put it, a little jokingly, maybe for a heavy topic, but I think it's worth repeating, the Romans were equal opportunity slavers. One could become a slave by a number of different ways. You could be, uh, have been a prisoner of war and then forced into slavery. Uh, the Romans used punishment for crimes by forcing people into slavery. Uh, some people were kidnapped and sold. We see evidence of that. Even Joseph in the Old Testament, in some ways, was kidnapped by his own brothers and sold to the slave traders for Egypt. You could be born into slavery because your parents were slaves. Abandoned babies were often raised as slaves. If you were a citizen of a city, this is interesting. We talked a little bit about this when we preached our way through Philippians. If you were, uh, Philippians was a city that was much uh, actually highlighted and celebrated by Rome. But, but if your city decided that they were going to uh, revolt or not like or not listen to Roman rule, they would take every single human being in that city and force them into slavery. Now think of the yoke of Rome, Right? You could have loved your city. You could have been there for 10 generations, and all of a sudden the city rises up, right? And what is Rome doing with this kind of oppressive pressure? They're saying if you're a citizen in this city and you start to hear these uprisings, you better know that if that goes through, we're going to come in there and we are going to take you out and you will live as a slave for the rest of your life. That's oppressive. Also, your debts could force you into slavery. If you just got too indebted, you could not pay it off. You had to pay with your life. And you could sell yourself like an indentured servant, trading your freedom to serve a master who would then take care of you and your family for life. And that is the best sense of the word slave in the New Testament. All of these were methods in which someone could become a slave. One scholar mentioned that there were as many as 60 million slaves in Rome or in the Roman provinces during the writing of 1 Timothy, and that one-third of the entire population in Rome were slaves. McMahon wrote, If you went to a doctor, had your accounts, your accounts worked on, watched an actor at the theater, or met the manager of a local business, all of those professions could have been slaves in ancient Rome. There were also slaves in the fields and mines who were kept in chains and subject to unbelievable brutality. But there were also slaves in what we would regard as white-collar and managerial roles. I completely conjecture here, and I'm going to get off base and out of my notes, which is dangerous for how soon you're going to be able to go to lunch. I did say conjecture. Um, it is an interesting conversation and, and fun things to maybe sit around and have a cup of coffee and think about. But in the introduction to both Luke and Acts, you have Luke, uh, as a writer, he's making his, his, his very clear propositional statement, that the, and he is writing back to a man by the name of Theophilus. And some people have thought, and I think it's an interesting thought. I would not sit here and tell you this is exactly what's going on, but, I, but it is very possible that Luke, being a doctor, a physician, was Theophilus's physician. He was Theophilus's slave. And Theophilus gets saved. This is all conjecture, right? 
but possibly and certainly in some circumstances could have happened. Theophilus gets saved. He understands uh, Dr. Luke is a very educated man. He understands the mission of the church is to send these apostles, right? And Dr. Luke then, I think probably maybe uh, from Theophilus gets sent and he meets up, right, with the Apostle Paul and this group that is traveling. He is writing. He is recording, right? And he is writing back and, and he is telling Theophilus, possibly his employer, his master, here is what is going on in the Christian world. Now, I only say that to say this wide range of slavery when we run into the word in the New Testament. It's wide. We kind of have to slow down. We kind of have to think a little bit. It's, it's, it's a little bit more, has a lot more going on than the word wine, which was used as medication and certainly drink also. One common thread that binds American and Roman slavery together is that the slave was a piece of property. They were not their own. They, as 1 Corinthians 6.20 says of the Christian, had been bought with a price. And some of them, like our Lord and Savior, and possibly, uh, possibly even a person like Luke, took the form of a bondservant. They chose slavery. Jesus came to earth, right? He he, he said multiple times throughout the gospel, I will only say what I hear the Father saying. I will only do what I see the Father doing. We know from Philippians 2, right, that he has given up his independent right to use his godness to come under the authority of the master, his father, and then he becomes obedient uh, 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 Philippians chapter 2, verse, verse I think it's 8 or 9, I can't remember, I don't have it on here, but, but nevertheless, right, he becomes obedient, and not just obedient slave, but obedient to the point of death. So when we think of slavery, we, we think negative, and we should think negatively of it. Praise God for our freedom. But the language of the New Testament is, come join me and be a slave of God. Lay down your will, your rights, and follow after me. Jesus would say it this way in John 14, 26. Lay, take up your cross, right? Die and come after me. It's the language of slavehood. One commentator noted concerning the ultimate death of not having free will. He noted that Aristotle called the slaves a living tool, a possession with a soul. That is tough, right? That is slavery. It is slavery in the New Testament. It is the slavery of Americas. You are not your own. And in some senses, in the best sense, Jesus calls us to come unto him to take his yoke. Why? Because he is a good master. Maybe the master like Theophilus. Amen? So it was and is, when we read of slaves in the New Testament, the Romans were colorblind. And their version of slavery, like their version of wine, was much different than ours. So the Spirit inspired the apostle he said this, all who are under the yoke of slaves, and here comes the command, the verb, right, are to regard. That means to think or to count or consider. It implies this 
change of mind, the word does. In 1 Timothy 1.12, uh, it is kind of used as a, a belief resisting, not on one's inner, or insisting, excuse me, resting on one's inner feeling or sentiment, but on the due consideration of external grounds. In other words, this was going to take them and make them, cause them to say, listen, I get it. The yoke of slavery, not good. <laughs> you are going to have to regard, you are going to have to consider, you are going to have to think your way through this because this is not easy, what he's getting ready to say. So they are to regard their own masters. The word here in Greek is despotes. It is, uh, it is um, translated as master. It is used in the positive sense of God in Luke chapter 2, verse 29, and Acts chapter 4, verse 24. It is also used, despotes, of Jesus in 2 Peter 2, Jude 4, and Revelation 6. However, here it is used with the connotation of, of what we might look it up, and I think I looked it up in the Oxford dic Dictionary, but their uh, definition of master or despotes or despot is a ruler or a person who holds absolute power typically one who exercises it in a cruel or oppressive way. So like any word in the New Testament, it can be used in different ways, and the context drives that, and despotes here is where we get our translated word or transliterated word, despot, referring to a cruel or oppressive type of leadership. So beloved, these Christian slaves are going to have to regard, they're going to have to think their way through and count or consider their despots, their masters, as look there, worthy of all honor. Man, talk about dying to yourself, right? Not just a good master like we would think of as the Lord or, or God, right? This despot, <laughs> this master who is brutal and cruel, Consider him worthy of all honor. Can you just think about that for a second? This is the principle within the text. This is the principle that translates to us so many years later. I can remember a time when I was in the Army. I was stationed at 2nd Ranger Battalion in Fort Lewis, Washington, where I met my wonderful wife, 23 years. Love you, wife. But... Uh, while I was there, I had transitioned from, from the headquarters company where I first landed into Alpha Company, and I was there, and things were going fairly well. I'd actually worked my way up and promoted. I was the gunner or the team leader for my team, and we got a brand new second lieutenant in, and for some reason, this guy, he just hated me. I don't know what else to say. I, I don't know if I had done something. I don't know if I was some kind of threat to him. I, I have no idea. But it was the oddest thing because here I am. I'm just going along. Things seem to be totally fine. And then I get this leader who is just brutal and cruel. Every time he sees me, he picks on me, he finds something wrong with my uniform, something wrong with my team, something wrong with my gun, something just nonstop all the time. See him outside, I would salute, Rangers lead the way, sir. They're supposed to respond all the way. He would stop and he would make me do push-ups or do something crazy. I have no idea what was up this, in this guy's craw about me. I, I really have no idea. Well, one day... Um, 
this is maybe off the track. I hope I can bring it back around. But uh, we had this first sergeant. He was an African-American guy. I don't know, 6'2 or 3, very just, just a stout guy, great posture. And he had his jump wings, and on his jump wings were two gold stars, and those two gold stars represented two times that he had jumped into battle, and he was one tough dude. And he had seen this young lieutenant treating me the way he had treated me, and he hollered at him, and let me tell you, the guy had a voice. Get over here! And I thought, I didn't know an NCO could talk to an officer like that. (laughs) And so I stood there at attention, waiting for him to come back and berate me. And uh, and First Sergeant Roberts, he tore a hole in that guy's battle dress uniform, right? He let him know. That young lieutenant came over. He did not apologize. He didn't mean anything. He just released me from being standing at attention, and I went on and I would not say that I was his most loved soldier, but he certainly changed. When I think of despot, and when I think of the United States military, and when I think of being a private at that time, private first class for being E3, um, I don't know why the guy didn't like me. I, I, don't, I didn't like him in the sense I wouldn't go look for him, <laughs> you know? But he didn't like me. But at the end of the day, I got up every morning, I showed up. For formation, I ran, I did my PT, I passed my tests, and if we had gone into battle, I would have been in battle with that guy, and for the honor of our country, and for the the benefit of a free country moving forward, I would have fought alongside him and died for him. It's kind of what's going on here a little bit. Being called, in a sense, your life is not your own as a slave, and you are to treat your master, this despot, in a way that is worthy of all honor. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit led the Apostle Paul to put this word in there, all, right? It's not like the first word, which was hasas. I, um, <laughs> I won't get into all that. It is pas or pas upon. It's a, it is the typical word for all and, and it's used to express, right? So Paul could have just said, right, worthy of honor. And it would have probably held some weight, right? Yeah, worthy of honor, tough. Worthy of all <laughs> honor. No room, beloved. And why? So that the name of God our and our doctrine will not be spoken against. The word there, the NASB is translating spoken against. I'm not, I don't know that I'm in love with the idea that they did that. Uh, maybe, it, maybe it helps us today, but it is, uh, it is the word blaspheme. So some of your translations have that there. Uh, and it says, so that the name of, our God, of God and our doctrine will not be blasphemed, right? Negatively spoken against. So why are these slaves to be treating their masters, their despots, uh, worthy of all honor, and it's not because it's the right thing to do or even socially just or, or unjust or whatever is going on there, right? There is a bigger picture going on in the life of the Apostle Paul as he is instructing the church. He is not hung up in the social injustices of the day. He is hung up in giving his life for the gospel, doing everything that he can to make sure the gospel is an example. And what is that gospel? That Christ himself, God himself in the flesh, comes as Christ. 
humbles himself to become a man, even a slave, it says there in Philippians chapter 2, right? He, he becomes a slave, becomes obedient to die for you and me. Should we, beloved, should we as Christians not act the same way with unbelievers? They don't deserve it. They treated me horrible. They fired me when they shouldn't have. They, they, they lied about me to make their way up the ladder. Treat them worthy of all honor so that the name of God would not be blasphemed. Love them, love people in a way that they do not deserve to be loved. And when people finally get around to quit thinking about themselves and they look at you and they think, what in the world is wrong with you? You can say, that is how my God loved me. It's a bigger picture than the injustice of slavery. Choosing to honor while in difficult circumstances glorifies God and his church. It is an example of how our Lord has treated us. Amen. So, beloved, where the first truth deals with all slaves treating their masters with all honor for glory, for the glory of God and the benefit of Christianity, the second truth deals specifically with slaves who have believing masters. It's kind of strange, right? I just made much of the idea of all. Didn't it just include all? Why, what is going on? Why, why now are we going to parse out a, uh, a section of slaves and masters that are obviously believing slaves and believing masters? The, the command was already in the all. Well, it's quite possible that, um, that in that day there was this issue that is coming up, right? Um, what, what has happened now that we are both born again and we are brothers in Christ? There's certainly, depending on the situation of slavery there in first century Rome, there is certainly some very rough conditions that, that if one slave happened to have been in, he might say, praise, praise God, right? My master saved, I'm gonna get, he's going to forgive my debt, right? And, and I'm out of here and, and all these things. And so, so it's possible that Paul... And the Spirit of God through Paul is, is, is going to clarify this situation. Uh, this, uh, for, for all the slaves who have maybe just quit and quit working, one-third of the population, let's say, stops and quits working. Can you imagine what might happen? All of you should say, yeah, look at our country. <laughs> Not good, <laughs> right? The economics fail. Life Fails. You can't get the things you need. You can't get started. People who are willing to work uh, can't work because people who are unwilling to work are gone. In this case, aren't working. And so there's nothing manufactured. There's no way to move forward. There's no way to run your business. If Christian masters lost all their labor and could not fulfill contracts, the name of God would certainly be spoken against, blasphemed. Whether that conjecture is right or wrong, the Spirit inspires Paul in light of Ephesian situation, says this in verse 2, the slaves, those, excuse me, that is the slaves, plural, who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful. So maybe the idea, right, where we're going to read into this a little bit is this idea that, that they thought, well, maybe if, if my master gets saved and I'm saved, right, that, that 
that I'm going to get let go, and now I'm mad, and so you would be disrespectful. So, so the Spirit is saying, don't be. You must not be disrespectful to them because why? They are brethren. I pound on this drum every time I get to it because I believe the church in America has lost the idea of family and thinks of the church as a universal church, and I just kind of go and bounce and do whatever I want and go wherever I want, and everything's okay with God. But, but the idea is really not that. Romans, after this great doctrine of salvation, you get to chapter 12, and, and, and you, you hear what is the will of God. The will of God is that you devote yourself to one another. Devote, not pass by, not, no, not, not know, <laughs> Not just come and go as you please and never know a name or get involved in the ministry of the church, right? Devoted to one another. And how would you do that? The one who serves, serves. The one who gives, gives. The one who prophesies, prophesies, right? The one who teaches, teaches. The idea is we are this body. We are this brethren. We are this family that comes together. And when we're all together and all the fingers and hands and toes and feet, isn't there a song like that? Anyway, come together and we're operating, right? That is the idea. They are brethren. They are your brother, the family of God. So it goes on to say, but must serve them all the more. So rather than run away and be disrespectful, serve them all the more. Because those who partake, that is the masters who partake of the benefit, are believers. They are beloved. I thought about this yesterday as I was prepping for today, and, and the Lord, I believe, brought to mind the little letter of Philemon. And Philemon, I think, captures, although the situation is a little different, clearly uh, Onesimus is, is not saved. It seems as if he probably ran away from his master, uh, who is Philemon. He uh, clearly is a guy that doesn't have his act together because he ends up in jail with the Apostle Paul, right, in God's providence. There he is, and, and it seems very clear that through Paul's preaching to him, because what, what else would Paul do? He didn't care if you were a slave, a, 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 the, the owner of a business, or the owner of the world, right? The idea was the gospel must go forth. And so Paul, in prison, right, uh, uh, runs into Onesimus and he gets saved. It says so much in Philemon, chap, uh, not chapter, goodness, verse 10. I appeal to you, that is Philemon, for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. That's clearly a reference to Onesimus' salvation. He goes on to give some more instructions there. And just five verses later, he appeals to Philemon, clearly, who is a pastor of a church who is owning right now in his present Roman slaves. And he says this to Philemon, for perhaps he, that is Onesimus, for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved, there it is, brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh, that is his servant, to Philemon and in the Lord. So what is happening here? Paul is, is seeing the circumstance. 
He is feeling, uh, I, I, I think, the weight of responsibility to, to disciple this young man in an extremely difficult situation. I don't know where uh, the church, Philemon, is at. Maybe it was in Rome. We're not 100% sure exactly where it might have been. But, but certainly the idea of uh, he got out of there, right, which took some emotional uh, <laughs> doing to do, right? Then he got caught and thrown in jail, right? And now he's, he gets saved, and uh, the guy who's discipling you, can you imagine this, is the Apostle Paul. <laughs> and he's saying, go back and be a slave. <laughs> what is going on here? <laughs> right? The mission is the gospel, beloved. The mission is the gospel. We should treat people with all honor so that Christianity will not be spoken ill of but when it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we must serve them all the more because they are beloved. They have been loved. They have been chosen. They have been called. They have been purchased by the good master. Amen? Have you ever slowed down to think about all of that language about our salvation? It sounds just like slavery. Line up. <laughs> I choose you, Nathan. Come on up here. I save you, Nathan. Come serve me. The first truth deals with all slaves treating masters with all honor. The second truth deals specifically with the relationship between believing slaves and masters. And the third truth comes in the form of a command. Timothy was to presently and continually be teaching and preaching these things or principles, as the NASB puts it. One person this week, when they asked, and I will tell you, it's been a heavier week, a harder study in light of our nation, what we see on the news all the time, the clear, the clear injustices, the not-so-clear injustices, all the different issues that are going on, the the, the reparations being talked of, going back, you know, back to American slavery, all those things are kind of in our mind, and, and I want to be mindful and thoughtful about the things that I tell you. I don't want to misrepresent what the Word of God is saying. And one person who had been in, in the church their entire life said to me, I have never heard a message on this. I have never heard a message on this. Yet, here we have the command, teach and preach these principles. Those two verbs, teaching and preaching, are present imperative verbs, meaning that he should, uh, Timothy has to be doing it now, right, as Paul is writing him. Teach them now and continue to teach them. Preach them now and continue to preach them. Now, somebody might come along from a very strict hermeneutical background and say, well, when Timothy was done, that command is over. Well, maybe so. And maybe that's why the church has ended up where it is, right? They quit teaching. They quit preaching the pastoral epistles. They decided they would do church the way they want. They would hire pastors the way they want. They would deal with things the way they want rather than turn to the Word of God, the, the, the master of words who has told us, do this, <laughs> Could it be, beloved, it's just that the church has not wanted to hear the teaching and preaching of God's Word. I wonder 
Is it because of 1 Timothy's contents and that they are so demanding of the church and its leaders that we don't teach and preach through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus? Could it be that the church in America, anyway, in its ignorance of the pastoral epistles, in part fulfilled what the Spirit prophesied through the Apostle Paul when he said this in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Could it be that the American Christians do not want to hear about the necessity for right doctrine from the pulpit found in chapter 1? Or that chapter 2, there is really such a thing as actual gender and there is gender roles for those who lead the church. Maybe that's why the church has gone silent on 1 Timothy. Or is it too much for the American church when they consider chapter 3 and find that they can't just find any gifted speaker to come up and speak and lead the church because he's charismatic and he knows a lot about the Bible, that he actually has to have a life of character and in a family that people can look at and say, I think there's some problems in a community that has recognized him like we are talking about now as a Christian. Maybe Maybe they would disqualify themselves by preaching through 1 Timothy. Have we not heard messages from the letters, the pastoral epistles, because they warn us of false teachers who teach people doctrines of demons, legalistic doctrines, violating the Christian's individual conscience from freedom in Christ, spoken of in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy? Or maybe we have not heard messages from chapter 5 because it informs the church that they must financially take care of widows who are widows indeed, and that they must respect and pay pastors, protect pastors from false accusations, rebuke sinning pastors in the presence of the whole church, that sounds like fun, and not get in a hurry to make a pastor a pastor. This sounds a little restrictive. I just thought we'd do this church thing the way we wanted to. Beloved, we have not heard messages about the principles of slave and master. And in the weeks to come, warnings about wealth and wealthy people because we want our ears tickled and we don't want to obey the command to teach and preach these principles. Friends, the Western Church, the Church of America, refused to study and teach 1 Timothy because it gives instructions for church. Will we be like Alice who questioned the words and one day hear the master say, when I use a word, it means just what I chose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question for FBC will always remain, who will be our master? We mention it sometimes, and I will bring it to our attention here that I pray that I would live up to the front of this pulpit that says, who answers the question, who will be our master? Sola alone scriptura. The scriptures alone. It's all we have. It's the promise we have. It's the promise Jesus said about his word, not one jot, not one tittle will pass away until all is fulfilled. 
We can get cute. We can move away. We can act like we're something we're not. We can do church the way we want to do it. But at the end of the day, his word will never fail. Amen? That's our promise. Choosing to honor while in difficult circumstances is hard for all of us, beloved. But it glorifies God, and where God is glorified, the gospel, the power of God to change a human heart is taught and it is spoken well of. How are you doing in your realm? We don't know slavery here in America the way we did a couple hundred years ago. We certainly understand, though, that this principle operates in our lives do you act one way here at church and act completely different in the business place? Have you not yet put the gospel as the very first thing that you are at the business you're doing for? I tell young people all the time, right, because America hangs out this, this yummy-looking piece of pie that says, be all that you can be. That was actually the army, army saying, I think, when I joined, right? But, but that's the idea is that, that be whatever you want. Man, praise the Lord, we have those kind of freedoms. But I always, always, always pushing back on that. Be a Christian. <laughs> Follow Christ. And if he takes you to be a nurse, then you're a Christian who's a nurse. If he takes you to be a construction guy, then you're a Christian who's a construction guy. And you are honoring and you are showing the world the love of God. You are treating them away, especially, believe me, I, I grew up in the trades. I spent 20 years as an electrician. And you go to break and there's every kind of conversation happening at break. And I'm reading my Bible. And I'm a young guy and I'm thinking, man, <laughs> these guys are going to break my knees, you know. But you live it out. You fly your flag, as Pastor Martin, my pastor, always says. And it brings some accountability to who you are. When you go to your workplace, let them know, I'm a believer. If you've made mistakes and you want to start that, beloved, uh, go to whoever you've made mistakes with and humble yourself and ask for forgiveness. Not easy. You might lose friends over it. But at least you have a place to start to say, I'm, I'm flying my flag. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I represent. Choosing to honor while in difficult circumstances glorifies God, beloved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word and, and even the study this week, which was full of different challenges and difficulties, Lord, but I'm grateful, God, to have done it. I, I pray, Lord, that through that study and through this vessel, Lord, that you would have drawn some near to you today, called some to repentance. I pray, God, that nobody would leave here without confessing it even now, Lord, the sin that is in their life. And Lord, I pray for them that you would endow them with your spirit, love them, draw them near, Lord, help them to walk with you, walk in the spirit, that they might deny the lust of the flesh and that they might live a life, Lord, that is worthy of your name, your great name, Lord. We thank you for your great love for us. Help us to apply these principles. We pray in Jesus' name. All of God's people said.